In order to retire successfully, you'll need vision. You'll also need a plan to execute that vision. Welcome to Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky. On today's show, we'll give you the tools you need to navigate unique challenges you'll face in retirement. It's time to chart your financial future. Retirement Pathfinder starts now. Glad to have you with us for another edition of the Retirement Pathfinder podcast. This is the show for you if you're looking to learn a little bit more about your financial life and also want to learn a little bit about what's going on in the financial world as a whole. I'm Walter Sorholt alongside Phil Gusky and Barbara Lane, Retirement Income Planning Specialists at Pathfinder Wealth Management, serving you throughout the Rockford area. Barbara is the author of two financial books, Roadmap for a Stress-Free Retirement and Remarkable Retirement. Phil is the founder of Pathfinder and the co-author as well of multiple financial planning books. You can find out all about the team by going online to pathfinderwealth.com. That's pathfinderwealth.com. We've got a great show for you today as we're going to answer some questions from folks like you on the mailbag edition of the show. We like to do these, of course, uh, pretty frequently, answer the questions that might be on your mind. You're probably going to have a similar question to at least one of our askers on today's program. Before we dive in, let's introduce you to the voices of the show. In case this is your first time around, Barbara and Phil, how are you guys this week? Great to chat with you. Hey, good to be here, Walter. Good to, good to be with you again, Walter. Well, we've got some challenging questions for you today, so I'm looking forward to peppering you with a couple of these and getting your guidance. I know in advance that I'm not going to be able to stump you, but that doesn't mean we won't try a little bit here. So let's get things kicked off with Bradley. By the way, if you want to submit a question to be featured on a future show, you can do that on the website we just mentioned, pathfinderwealth.com. Bradley says, my wife totaled her car and we need about $30,000 to get her a new one. We only keep about $1,000 in the bank. So should we just get this from an IRA where we'll have to pay taxes on it? Or should we use after-tax money and pay capital gains? Uh, Walter, I'll take that particular question, and uh, that's a good one. One of the first questions I would ask Bradley is, if the car was total, Bradley, how much insurance is going to be used to replace the car? Did you have it insured? And is this $30,000 over and above the insurance amount? That's a real important question. Uh, another particular issue that I want to cover is, and it's generally, this is just a guideline recommendation. Generally, it's not a good idea to take from an IRA account because, of course, they're taxable. And if Bradley is under 59 and a half, there might be a 10% penalty as well. So whether it's from an IRA account or from a non-IRA account, generally speaking, it's not really a very good idea to take money out of your investments. Why? Look at your investments as being a money machine. They're there producing additional income for your future. So it's there to protect you in your old age. Well, if you use that money as a kind of a put and take account, it's probably not a good idea whether you take the money out of an IRA account or take it out of a non-IRA where you have some capital gains advantage. You do not want to decimate your investment account for the future. Now, that being said, you need to really set up an account for emergency purposes. And Barbara and I usually recommend three months to six months worth of equivalent to income to save just in case something like this happens. So obviously, they don't have much of a car fund for themselves. They really should think about putting one together. And maybe the roof goes out. Maybe the baby gets sick. There's other type of calamities that happen along the way. It's probably a very good idea to keep your powder dry. Put that money aside. The other thing I, I want to say is that I'm not always in favor of paying cash for depreciating items like cars. The money goes away and the value of the car depreciates as well. So 
once you pay for the car in cash, you're going into a depreciating asset, you're depleting your account, you really have nothing at the end of the day to show for it. My recommendation would be to uh, go to the dealer and find out if they have something by way of a low rate interest loan. A lot of these dealerships have one or 2% interest rates they charge, or they have competitive sources outside of the dealership and outside of your community that they can hunt for to give you a reasonable amount of interest rate charge on that particular loan for the car. Now, if you do that and you're making more money in your investments, mm -hmm. the difference is called arbitrage. In other words, it's money in your pocket. And so you don't want to tie all your capital assets up into a non-appreciating asset. You want to try to borrow that money. In my estimation, that's how I feel about it. Use the arbitrage approach. What do you think about that, Barb? Well, you know, based on what we know about Bradley, I would say use after-tax money for a down payment on the car. Yes, that'd be good. But when I think about $30,000 and pulling that from an IRA account, my first thought is how long did it take you to add $30,000 to your mm. IRA? Is that over a period of several years? So now you're taking all your contributions plus your growth and, you know, in one fell swoop, one withdrawal, then that's all gone. So think about how long it took for you to add to that. And that would be the last place that I would take it from, and especially for a car. Right, right. Great question, Bradley. And uh, yeah, lots of little moving parts in that question. Some things to be thinking about for sure. Some things that deal with the immediate issue, but also Barbara and Phil giving some good advice on how to avoid this issue again in the future. So great question. We appreciate you submitting that one to us today. Hope you find that helpful. Give a call if you've got questions like Bradley has. You want to talk it out with Phil and Barbara. We'll give you the number again at the end of today's show, but just in case you want it now, 815-399-9806 is the number if if that question sparks something inside of you that you want to ask, 815-399-9806. All right, Martin has our next question. Martin says, I have money in an annuity that I'm not very happy with and wanted to move it to a different annuity, but I'm told there will be a big penalty if I take the money out of the current one. What's that all about? Oh, I would love to take this question. I just had an example I'm going to give you this week. So a few questions to begin with, and that, first of all, what was the purpose for the annuity to begin with? Was it for safety? In other words, are you risk averse? Was it for income? Do you need monthly income? And what is it exactly that you're not happy with? The majority of people that I see do not know why they bought an annuity. Oftentimes, I'm not going to say this is always the case, but oftentimes the advisor's reasons and not the client's. So just remember that annuities are just another tool in the toolbox. They're not an answer to all and often they're oversold and for the wrong reasons. Yes, you do have a surrender period, and that does decrease every year. So that can start out to be as long as three years, up to 16 years, and if you leave the contract before that time, then you do pay a penalty. So what I do when someone comes in with a variable annuity, there's three types of annuities, by the way. Two, basically have no fees, unless you specifically structure it, but for the most part, no fees. But with a variable annuity, we typically see lots of fees. So I'll call the company direct and ask for the fee structure. And you may find something like what I see often, which are fees in excess of 25 to 3% or more per year. So Martin, give our office a call at 815-399-9806. I'd be glad to do this with you. So two weeks ago, I met someone with three annuities, the same company, and these are all variable annuities. And they don't know why they bought them. Their fees are about $5,600 a year plus. That's not counting what each sub-account charges. So inside of a variable annuity is a mutual fund type of account we call a sub-account, and there's a management fee for each one of those choices. 
That's not counting that, the 5,600. So for this person, let's take $5,600 in fees. So to get out of the contracts, it's gonna cost them about 1,900. Does it make more sense to exit those contracts now and save $3,700 this year? The point is that you can have an annuity for the right reasons, but many questions that I would ask before it makes sense to go to another one. And one of the most important questions is this, were you given choices or was this presented as an only solution? What do you think, Phil? Yeah, I'd go along with that, Barb. And in addition to that, I would also ask that client if they were aware of a surrender charge period. Mm -hmm. And the reason why there is a surrender charge in an annuity contract is because the company is going to take your money, invest it outside, preferably in bonds for a long period of time. And if they've got to pull out of the market because you're pulling your money out of the market, they will suffer a loss and they're going to pass that loss along to you as an account holder. So you need to be aware of it. And there's got to be some very, very good reasons why Martin would want to move from one annuity account to another. Interest rates may be one, but quite often what happens is that clients are convinced that they need to move to another annuity because of lower interest rates. And they end up losing a lot of money in the surrender charge period. So we, we discourage that highly. But as fiduciaries, we have to tell both sides of the story. We have to explain to the client that if they're looking at an annuity, they have to look at both sides. What is the upside? What is the downside? The difficulty with annuities is that if the insurance company will drop the interest rates or not produce a more competitive rate of return to the client, the client will be trapped into that contract with that high surrender charge and pay a, a big penalty to get out. That is the downside of annuities. Now, as Barb said, it's part of the toolbox. But if every problem you have looks like a nail, you know, then every solution looks like a hammer and that could be annuity. And a lot of people are just selling annuities. That's what they do. They're annuity salespeople. One size does not fit all. You have to have a variety of approaches and concepts. And that's that's really a better approach. Yep, agreed. Yeah, it's just so important, I think, too. I mean, that's the thing we talk about each week here on the show, how everybody's getting customized guidance and advice. What's right for you is not necessarily right for the next person, maybe not even right for a family member of yours. We're all different, and that's why you can't have every solution look like the exact same. So make sure that you're talking with any advisor. Martin, you know, if you're getting this advice from an advisor, make sure that they're looking out for your best interests and also looking at your financial picture as a whole and not just looking, you know, more as a product salesman. That's really, really important to remember. Terrence has our next question on the mailbag today. Terrence says, my dad is in his 90s and his health is starting to decline. Would it be wise for him to start gifting money to me and my sister while he's still alive so that we don't have to deal with so much estate tax? We've also talked about him signing over his house to us. Walter, I'll take that particular question. There's a couple parts to this particular question that we need to address. The first one is that, you know, federal gift tax and estate taxes are rather tricky. And so if a person wants to gift away to their children or grandchildren, they could do so in 2019 or up to $15,000 and not have to report it. Anything above that, legally, they have to file a gift tax return. That all being said, however, the gift tax laws have changed to the point where you have up to $11.4 million before you really start to pay taxes on, on gift taxes. So in most situations, it doesn't make a lot of sense to gift money away to reduce estate taxes because, quite frankly, the exemptions are so high. And so that's one of the things that we tell our clients is that you don't want to really necessarily make a, a decision based on taxes alone. There's a lot more to it. And that brings us to the second part of the question. 
signing the house over to the kids. Well, if you assign the house to the children, you have to understand certain things. If you change the deed, make the children the owners of your house, you as the donor of that house no longer have any ownership rights to that house. You've gifted that away. So if, uh, for instance, your children fail to pay the real estate taxes, you could lose the house in a tax sale. Or if they incur a liability, let's say they're sued, they were in an accident, were sued, or they go through a bankruptcy or even a divorce, you could end up losing your house because that is part of, that would be part of the assets of your children. So it's not a good idea to sign away a house. The other thing we have to take a look at is the tax side of the, um, the gift. If dad keeps the house in his name and dies with that asset in his name, that particular house gets what's called a step up in basis. In other words, the, the gain on that house, if there's any gain on that house, it is forgiven and the house can be sold and there would be no taxes. However, if you give that house away to your children, those children basically inherit the original cost. When they turn around and sell the house, then they have to pay the tax on that gain. They lose the step up in basis advantage. So the kids would have to pay the tax on the gain. So that's what I would basically say to the kids. It probably doesn't make sense to go ahead and have that property gifted away to them, either to offset federal gift taxes or estate taxes, or to reduce the amount of liability in the estate. The other thing you have to be careful of is if dad's health declines even further and he ends up going to a nursing home, the nursing home is going to examine all of the accounts going back five years. And if there was any gift made, those particular gifts will be called back into the estate to be used for dad's care before they could pick up the government program of Medicaid. Barb, what do you have to add to that? Well, you know, and I, I hear this question, it just poses, as you know, Phil, so many questions when it comes to estate planning with regard to protecting of an estate. But when if he's concerned, if Terrence is concerned about an estate tax, they have to have at least $11 million for that to even be an issue. Right. And if his dad is in his 90s and his health is starting to decline, well, let's just say that if he goes to the nursing home now, he's likely not going to last for more than a few years, which means that they have plenty. It sounds to me like they'd have plenty of money to take care of that. So why sign the house over to the kids now? So there's a lot of questions that I would have, but I agree with you in signing the house over to the kids. He may not get through five years of that anyway, and, and then uh, they certainly have the uh, capital gains issue with the kids. Is it a common situation where people don't realize that the estate tax is really only impacting people, you know, very high earners? Is it, do people come in with, you know, half a million or a million dollars, say, for retirement and think that they're, you know, going to need to avoid that kind of tax? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I yeah. think that uh, a lot of people are laboring under old information that might be 20 years old when a time when the, maybe the federal exemption was $600,000 or they're convinced that they have to pay taxes when they inherit something or they have to pay taxes when something's gifted. It would really make better sense to talk to a tax professional or a great advisor who can give them a little bit of tax guidance on this because quite frankly, the laws change all the time. Exemptions go up, exemptions go down. What is the current law and what do they know about it? Yeah, very few do though, that's it. Well, thanks again for that question, Terrence. Very intriguing and thought-provoking today. One more question here from Roberta before we wrap up the podcast this week. Roberta says, I'm a big believer in my current company's future. So the majority of my 401k is invested in company stock. I understand that I'm not diversified, but isn't that okay since I know the company so well? I think you guys are going to have a field day with this question. Oh, well, let's see. I'll answer that one, Walter. 
I will say this. The first rule of investing, Roberta, is diversify. I understand your allegiance with the company and the fact that you think that they're doing well, but typically you should focus on about five to 10% of your account value to company stock. Now, I don't know your age or your retirement date, and you may or may not know what's going on with the company because remember, look at all the Enron employees that lost their retirement, all of their retirement due to everything being invested in the company stock because they didn't know the truth behind the company's books. So with company stock, you only have one company, your own company that you're putting all your faith in. Diversification is important because you have asset classes being large companies, small companies, value, international, et cetera, that don't move, all move in the same direction at the same time. So values decrease less because you're spreading out your money more. Now, as far as company stock, if you're getting ready to retire, there is a tax efficient way to move that money from your plan. And we can certainly speak to you about that. But if you have many years before retiring, you may want to move some of the allocation to company stock into a better diversified mix within your plan. There's a reason that your mother said, don't put all your eggs in one basket, because actually Enron is the reason that qualified plans suggest a guideline of no more than about five to 10% of your portfolio to company stock. So go with your gut instinct. And maybe there's a reason that you're asking this question, Roberta. If it doesn't feel right, it just may not be. Because remember this, you may have all the belief in the company, but you want to protect yourself and protect your investment in your future. Hope that helps. Yeah, I would add to that, Barb, that this question goes beyond just stock in a 401k plan. Many of clients out here in the community have a lot of their money in one particular location, like a bank. And uh, there was a well-known unfortunate experience here in Rockford where a company called Commercial Mortgage failed. That company was started by Swedish immigrants 120 years ago. And many people over the generations placed lots of money in that bank. They did very well. But over the last 10 years, that bank failed. In fact, in 2007, 2008, they got caught with a lot of unperforming mortgage loans, mortgage properties. And unfortunately, those clients lost all their money. Why? Because that company was not FDIC insured. They had a different management structure in place than they had many years ago. They uh, lost all of that money and there was no compensation to them whatsoever. And we had actually warned uh, several of our clients mm -hmm. to diversify from that particular company because they didn't have FDIC. But there was a um, basically a consolation prize to it. At least they could write off part of that loss each year on their tax return. Yeah. But, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember that company too, because I had a couple of clients invested with them. But this company was around for, oh my gosh, a good 20 plus years, but they were always paying better interest rates than a CD at a bank. But I did warn my clients that they're not FDIC insured. And then we also had a local, large local manufacturing company that went belly up. So people that had a lot of company stock in that, that was gone. And in fact, PBGC had to step in for them. Right. PBGC only pays pennies on the dollar yeah. in terms of the coverage. So yep. that particular organization, which is a quasi-government agency, only covers a portion of any losses in your pension plan. So be aware of that. And that's a good reason why people need to move their 401ks out of those companies and into a uh, rollover IRA and be self-directed. Yeah. Great question, Roberta. And I like what you said there, Barbara. It sounds like Roberta's gut may already be telling her the right answer here, you know, already asking this question to begin with. There may be a little something on your insides, Roberta, kind of saying, is this the right decision? And pursue that gut a little bit further, that, that feeling. And isn't that the way that it goes with a lot of things in our lives? And especially when it comes to our financial lives as well. We know 
a lot of the times the right answers to these questions. It's just sometimes emotions, feelings, those kinds of things tend to get in our way or might influence us or bias us in one direction or another. And that's why it's so helpful to be able to kind of bounce questions off of an advisor, have somebody there to teach you what you didn't even know you needed to know, uh, and also steer you back in the right direction when you're getting off track with your plan. And that's what Barbara and Phil do every day for folks in the office here in Rockford. If you've got questions, you want to talk to them about your particular situation, you don't have to talk about it here on the podcast. You can talk about it offline, of course, and go back and forth with just Barbara and Phil and the great team at Pathfinder Wealth Management. You can get in touch by calling 815-399-9806. That's 815-399-9806. Or you can find them online at pathfinderwealth.com. That's pathfinderwealth.com. And you can find uh, ways to get in touch. Just look for the contact button and you can reach out via the web there as well. Another great mailbag edition of the Retirement Pathfinder show is in the books. And Barbara and Phil, thank you both so much for the help and guidance on today's show. Yep, have a great Our day. pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. And we'll talk to you next time as well, right back here on the Retirement Pathfinder podcast. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.